holding pocket. To another episode of the Rabbit Hole Detectives, a podcast where I, Dr. Kat Jarman, Richard Coles, and Charles Spencer chase the provenance of historical objects, both real and metaphorical. Each episode, we set one another the task of finding out as much as we can about a particular subject to present a comprehensive understanding of the origin stories of stuff. After all, everything has a history. It just depends on how far down the rabbit hole you prepare to go. And at the end of it all, our disembodied voice pronounces a winner. So hello again, rabbit holies. Hello, hello, cat. How's everyone today? Oh, spring. Yes. Uh, coming, coming. You know what? Yes. Municipal crocuses are up. And yes. daylight. Daylight. I, yeah. I'm such a daylight nerd and we're getting an extra minute and a half in the morning, an extra two minutes in the afternoon. Yeah, you can see in the afternoon, can't you? I've got yeah. this sort of school run thing where if it's light when I come home on school and I'm not. That's I mean, for a Norwegian, I suppose that's quite a novelty thing. <laughs> yes. I mean, any daylight at all. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Actually seeing the sun. But you get the white nights, don't you, in the summer? Yes, we do. Yeah. So people would just stay up pretty much and do things. You, would you wear your buna, but you wouldn't do country dancing because you deny that there's such a thing as Norwegian country dancing. Yeah, You'd well, be Morris dancing all I over the place. I knew we'd soon get back to Morris dancing. Yeah, And I'd like to thank all the listeners for their comments. It <laughs> 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 was a popular one. They all want to see you dance though, don't they? Yeah. So I think God, this is going to have God, to happen. Paid, do they though? I paid my own money to see that. <laughs> <laughs> they definitely would. I think that's very, Wave the very white good. hanky. Well, spring though, it's a lovely... It is a great thing, isn't it? Just all of a sudden that sense of the new and renewal, I suppose, isn't it? It's yeah. Hmm. You just remember, especially because January, which lasted for about two years yeah. this year, I think, and then you get into February and it gradually gets better and you suddenly remember that actually it's not all that bad. Yeah. My mother used to go to Australia every February and I always thought that's very sensible. Yeah. I need to go. I have to see if I can. Even if it's just for 10 days in January, February, just go somewhere where the sun's shining. Really yeah, I do that. It makes a big difference to me. Yeah. Also, it's not just doing that. It's knowing it's coming. It's yeah. good for morale. It's good for morale, exactly. Yeah. Anyway. Well. That's the end of the weather forecast. Now on to execution, horrible death. Exactly. Now, we're quite excited about this episode because it's actually the very first episode of Series 4. Series four. Hey. Renewal. Yes, yes. exactly. going to be completely different from Series 3, obviously. <laughs> yes. So this is the first first episode of the new series. And Richard, actually sort of taking us back to warmer climes <gasps> for your topic, really. So we're going to let you start. And you're going to be talking to us about Madeira wine. Have some Madeira, Madeira. You'll remember that song. Well, yes. listeners of a certain age will. Flanders and Swan, comedy singing duo. Have some Madeira, Madeira. Remember, it was the drink plied by an elderly roué onto a young girl with whom he wished to have his wicked way. Not a song that I feel would get much airplay now, but it was of its time. <laughs> but I think part of the joke was that Madeira was seen as rather a sort of old man's drink, a fortified wine. Come with me through the North Atlantic to the island of Madeira which lies off the coast of Morocco, actually, and a fair chunk south from Portugal. It is a Portuguese autonomous territory, I think they call it now. It was settled in the early 15th century and in the age of exploration provided a very handy stopping off place for ships from Portugal either going, turning right to go to the New World or going down to turn left to go to the East Indies, as we called them then. 
trade winds would take them there, they would stop there and they would take on water and necessary supplies and also wine. It was settled and they started making wine there. A rather inferior table wine, I have to say. So they would stick it in barrels and stow it in the ship and sail across the Atlantic or round to the East Indies. When they got there, they'd find that the wine was not a robust wine and was spoiled. So they needed to do something to that. So they took a trick from the makers of port and they added a certain amount of spirit and it was cane sugar actually. So they distilled some spirit from cane sugar and put that into the wine to stabilise it effectively, fortify it as we say. And then off it went and then a ship went to the New World, to South America and then they didn't sell it and it came back and they thought, well, what are we going to do with this? So the merchants opened up these barrels and they tasted the wine and it had miraculously become delicious. Because in the course of that journey, it had slooshed around in barrels in the hold of a ship in sultry tropical climate and had effectively sort of cooked. And the wine that came back was a sort of cooked wine. They tasted it and it was absolutely delicious. And that was the beginning of Madeira wine. People talk about wines that undergo this sort of processes, cooking, oxidation that comes with that, second or delaying second fermentation as being madeirized. Different varieties, of course. There are four noble grapes from which proper Madeira wine is made. Cercial, which is the lightest, the freshest, the driest. Then there's Verdeo, which is not dissimilar. Then there's Bual, which is quite a dark, rich wine. And then Malvasia, mm. which is the rich one, hugely popular in England in the 17th century, where it was known as Malmsey. And we know what happened with the Malmsey, don't we? Yes, somebody drowned. Wasn't it, it the Duke of Gloucester in Richard or, III? Or Clarence. Was Duke it? of Clarence, that's right, was yes. drowned in a butt of Malmsey. Well, yes. what that was was Madeira wine. And because of its stability, it became a great hit in the New World. And in America, Madeira was the wine of choice. And Madeira was what they toasted the Declaration of Independence with. Hmm. Madeira wine. And also, did you know it played a very important part in the American Revolution, because it was in 1768, John Hancock, a British merchant, bought a sloop of Madeira wine, 25 pipes of Madeira wine into Boston Harbour. And it was impounded, and then his ship was confiscated by the Royal Navy. And they got hold of the ship and set fire to it and sculled it. It was the first act of defiance against English or British power in the colonies, as it were. So there's a little footnote. That's in so interesting. So it's not the Tea Party, the Boston Tea Party. It was the Madeira. <laughs> the Madeira <laughs> fracas, yeah. really. Yes. yes. I but must they say, loved it. I don't like port. Never have. No, me neither. I can't understand it. But Madeira is a delicious drink, and people don't try it enough, do they? Absolutely delicious. Well, it's been through the doldrums a bit, you see. Mm. So it became very, very popular in the 18th century, especially in the New World. And then it was the sort of drinks of a generation of kind of great uncles and grandparents mm. and stuff that taste of fortified wine. And then, well, I mean, the thing that really messed it up was partly the rise of steam shipping, because no longer did people need to put into the Atlantic islands on their way to somewhere else. So it became rather neglected as a result of that. But the real change was phylloxera. So phylloxera came along in the 1860s, 1870s, the vine louse, as it is known. And, you know, that terrible impact on wine cultivation in France, but also in Madeira. So it lost lots of its vines. And then it became expedient to grow sugarcane instead. Now banana, actually. Mm. And then it sort of fell into the doldrums. And also its two biggest markets 
were Russia and America. Prohibition, of course, closed off that market in America. The Russian Revolution, the Civil War, closed it off in Russia too. So it kind of became rather a Cinderella wine until really the 1980s. Very important wine shippers and intermediaries were British families, just as they are in port and sherry. You see British names all the time in those bottles. Well, so it is with Madeira. The Blandings, for example, the famous families who came over the late 18th century, early 19th century and filmed a foothold there. They became very important in it. And it was one of those families, the Simmons of Portugal, decided they were going to revive Madeira. And so they got Bartholomew Broadbent, who's a famous Englishman, but based in America. And he was charged in the 1980s with repopularising Madeira. And what they did was the vines had been kind of restocked with Tinta Negra Mole, which is one of those resistant vines to Phylloxera. And they'd started making wine and classifying it as they had the old classifications, Cercial, Malvasio, and so on. But they were style. It wasn't the same grapes. It was done with style. And the wine they produced was so ordinary. It was really used as cooking wine and sold mostly to France, but seasoned with salt and pepper. Yeah, I remember it. I remember my mother had it. Really? Yeah. And it was used for cooking. For cooking. Yeah. Then they sort of reintroduced these new grape varieties. Under EU regulations, of course, you could only sell wine that bore the name of the noble variety if I think 85% of the content actually did come from that grape. Mm. So it's made by two methods, really. There's estufagem, which is the sort of cheap way, and that will produce a material in sort of three to five years when the wine is put in vats and then it's heated. They pass a sort of coil, a heating element round it, and that will produce the lovely effect that they've come to enjoy. But the cantero is the proper method, and that's done by putting the wine in barrels, then putting them under the rafters of the house, and then the natural heat produces the lovely Madeira wine thing, but that can take 20 years. So the cheaper Madeiras, which are made with the Estefagem method, three to five years old, and then the really grand ones, Blandings, for example, the cantero, mm. can be 20 years old. One of the things I've heard about it, it doesn't go off. Is that right? It can last forever, is that, if you don't Pretty know. much. I could, yeah. I could drop you my favourite fact at this point. Oh, yes, yes, please. A bottle of Madeira sold recently at auction and was opened and drunk and found to be entirely palatable that was bottled in 1715. Oh. oh, wow. So if you were interested in wine of enormous antiquity that <laughs> yes. retains its freshness, yes. well, not its freshness exactly, but its taste and its depth and its savour, Madeira wine is the one for you. Have some Madeira. 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 <laughs> Amazing. Would you always drink any, or does it ever get mixed or in any sort of other drinks? Or is it always just drunk? Well, it's drunk an aperitif, but it is, yeah. I mean, one famous use of Madeira, of course, is in Tourne dos Rossini, or Tourne do Rossini, depending on how you like to pronounce it, which is perhaps the most luscious, delicious way of eating a tenderloin of beef that you possibly could, where it's, as you know, it's named after the composer who was a great gourmet and died at the age of about 12 because he was so fat. Well, not quite. But um, <laughs> it's a wonderful piece of fillet steak, which is then popped on a very lightly fried piece of foie gras oh, yes. covered in a demi-glace, which is finished with Madeira wine. So it is the acme of richness and deliciousness, but it will not give you length of years. <laughs> do you like it? I do. By chance came across it about three or four years ago. An old friend of mine brought it and I thought, well, exactly what you said earlier. I thought this is from a couple of generations back and it's going to be vile. It's so good. And every time I've introduced it to people, I'd say 80% of them think it's really a, an astonishingly good drink. There's only a thousand acres of vines in Madeira and only wine from Madeira can be called Madeira. 
And you've been to Madeira. Oh, I remember. Are they proud of it? Is it a big thing still, even though it's only a thousand acres? Well, I suppose it's a bit like if you lived in Stratford-upon-Avon, you don't think about Shakespeare very much. I think the Madeiras, they also make a table wine, or they make a number of tables, which aren't particularly very good. And I think it's partly because of its its oceanic climate and also it's volcanic. It's a seamount. It's built on that. So the areas in which you can grow the grapes are actually quite small. Mm. And also the higher up you go, the drier the wine. Mm. So it is actually quite specific. And also they're built rather like ports. They build these terraces of basalt and they grow it on that. And also because of the oceanic climate, they have to lift the canopy of the vine off the ground. So it is actually very labour intensive. You can't harvest it mechanically. Mm. So it's always going to be scarce and labour intensive. So that doesn't make for a cheap wine but it does make for a delicious one do you like it Kat? you know what i have tasted it but not so that i can really remember so i'm gonna have to do a special mm. tasting i think after this just to because horseradish <laughs> schnapps is more your sort of thing isn't it as i've got older i found that rich luscious sweet nutty sandalwoody leathery wine more and more delicious tokai yeah. i've got to love i think that's Taste buds getting a little, and I'm the same, yeah. and, and heading more towards quite strong Italian wines rather than fancy French wines. I thought you were going to say Blue Nun, a lead for <laughs> milk. I can't quite see you drinking that. John. One day. <laughs> Brilliant. Madeira Thank wine. You. Yes, I'm definitely going to have to, just for research purposes. I okay. Think. Yeah, nothing else. Thank you very much. So, Charles, that's going to bring us up to you next. And again, the person I know nothing about at all, you have been researching Werner von Braun. Well, Werner von Braun has a foot in two camps, and I find them both so interesting. And really, in him, you've got a story of the middle years of the 20th century. He is a a Prussian baron born in a part of Prussia that after the First World War becomes Polish So he moves. He's born in 1912, but he moves as a young man to Berlin with his family as a boy, actually. Is that Königsberg, around that Silesia? Well, the actual place he's from is, I don't know how you pronounce it, but Wiersitz, W-I-R-S-I-T-Z. What was then East Prussia and then became part of Poland? Yeah, I can't possibly pronounce the Polish one. It's a lot of W's and Z's. Go ahead, go. (laughs) Actually, it's probably Wiersitz. So very close, but uh, there we are. You're now going to ask me tomorrow's dance as I say that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But anyway, really interesting in that he comes from this old aristocracy of Germany. Through his mother, he's descended from the kings of Denmark, France, England and Scotland. But, you know, he gets caught up in this strange world because his obsession at school, he's thought of as a not particularly academic student. And then he comes across this book called... Die Rakete zu den Planeten Raurum. And that, I'm going to translate into English for someone else, is the rocket into planetary space. Mm-hmm. And he goes from an absolute mediocre student to one who is transfixed by the possibility of rockets and space travel. And he reads this book, and it's by a man called Hermann Obert, and he actually ends up working with him later. That's half the story. And then he becomes intrigued by space. And on his 13th birthday, he's given a telescope. And I remember we've talked about things that inspired us when we were children. I think you had a chemistry set in your past, Richard. You know, how incredibly well-placed by a parent to spark the exact sort of genius, if I can, I'm afraid he is a rather controversial figure, is about to become clear, but to spark in them this, the thing that they're primed to be good at. 
I rather think of him as a sort of young Sheldon, if you've seen Big Bang Theory. He becomes this genius student who's so good that he's allowed to teach his fellow pupils about possibility of rocket travel and space. And he becomes a an engineer mechanic and gets a degree a year early because he's so clever. And he graduates high school and joins age 20 the German Society for Space Travel, which, of course, was just a nebulous idea then. But he took it very, very seriously. Oh, gosh, and how long those meetings would have been. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But while he was working on projects with them, he worked with his hero, this man, Obert, whose book had first got him going. They managed to produce the first, well, one of the first liquid-fueled rocket motor tests. So it's all going in this rather extraordinary way. He then becomes part of a sort of secret in the early 1930s and then developing more in the mid-1930s, part of the German programme of arming itself for what is clearly going to be a war or two. And he's taken in under various banners that don't give away what they're doing into mechanical sections of the army's research. And essentially, I'm afraid this is where it gets quite dark, he becomes an officer in the SS in 1940. Himmler is very intrigued by the possibilities of rockets in warfare. And he takes this a rank and he works on what is, to the English, a very famous and terrifying concept, which is the V2 rocket. V2 is the vengeance weapon too, if you translate the German. I'm not going to try another German word on you. Um, Let's go with V2. And he is behind its first successful flight. And Hitler realises straight away that even though it's a very unstructured, rather difficult to direct weapon, it is one of terror. And he deploys it. Hitler deploys it over England, kills at least 2,000 people in London and around England with this. And at the same time, well, probably nearer 3,000. But the real disaster in the manufacture of this rocket is in the manufacturers. So the Germans have run out of possible manpower at this stage the Eastern Front having mocked up an enormous number of young German men. So they resort to forced labour from the concentration camps and from reluctant foreigners. And they probably suffered tens of thousands of of losses during the making of this. The Allies bombed uh, where it was being manufactured to start with, a place called Pienemunde, and they bombed it out of existence, really, in August 1943. And then the Germans started producing them underground in a place called Mittelwerk and Dora, the camp there, in inhuman conditions. And any of the manufacturers, any of the slave labour that was able to survive the starvation and being worked to death were in danger of arbitrary execution. If anyone was accused of doing something underhand to the machinery involved in this, there were mass hangings. So it's really horrendous. And this is all relevant. It's not me going off on my usual bent, because what did Werner von Braun know? He claimed to have only visited the camp in detail once, but there are other people who have him cited there quite a lot. Question. Why did he take rank in the SS? That sounds sinister to me, because to sign up to the SS, then you needed to really be with the programme, right, of extreme Nazism. So why did he take rank in the SS? Why wasn't he just a science scientist? 
If I can hold that one, okay. it's a very good question because essentially what happens is the rest of his life is very much against this background of him being this genius behind rocket development, but at the same time being a major in the SS. And what did he really believe in? Because what happens is at the end of the war, he's suddenly of huge use to the Allies. So they help him. He's effectively employed by the US Army from 1945 to 60. They help him to just gloss over this. And he flags up. If people say, were you in the dirtier parts of Nazi regime? He said, well, you know, in 1944, I was arrested because he got drunk in early 1944 for defeatism. He was arrested because he said, we're going to lose this thing. And so he spent 10 days before being released by somebody who said, look, he's essential to rocket development. So he always pointed to that. But I'm afraid it looks very likely that he was fully conversant with what was going on in Mittelwerk. And um, it was just convenient for him and his employers to play it down. And this gets me to Operation Paperclip. Paper I was going to say, is this Operation Paperclip? I remember Here it. Here we are. Operation Paperclip. All things lead back to either the Vikings or Paperclips, yes, I reckon. Yes, exactly. Um, so he was sent, as part of Operation Paperclip, he was sent to help the American effort in rocket development. And Operation Paperclip saw 1,600 German scientists and technicians and engineers being spirited away to this service of America between 1945 and 59. And it's called this because when the Secret Service working on behalf of America liked the look of a prisoner of war, yeah. they put a paperclip on their file and they oh. were just pushed to one side to be taken into work for the other side, as it were. It's a feature of the end of a conflict, isn't it? Is that you, part of the spoils of war is the expertise of the enemy, isn't it? And if you were Werner von Braun, or there are many other examples, went to Australia, for example, yes. of people who would have been found guilty of war crimes had they been tried for them, but were nonetheless so useful to the Allies' interests that they were uh, spared that. And we're absolutely right, Richard. In fact, the Russians, in one night in October 1946, did the equivalent of their operation paperclip. They moved 2,200 Nazi scientists and 4,000 of their family members in one night to the USSR. Mm. to be used in the same way. And in fact, what was lucky for the Americans, if I can, you know, obviously against this terrible story of abuse of concentration camp workers, was that in 1945, Werner von Braun had been told to destroy all his documentation. It was clearly going to be, the war was only going to go one way. And he hid them in an abandoned mine, all his paperwork in the Hartz Mountains and, and found them and was able to retrieve those. So he became an incredibly important figure in America pretty much straight away. He was brought in very much into American culture. And uh, he, he was a spokesman for three Walt Disney television programs on space travel, really through his I suppose, extrapolating from what he had worked out with the V-2, he produced the Redstone, which was America's first ballistic missile. And then in 1960, he moved from the US Army to NASA and became really one of the fathers of space travel. In 1961, he worked on Saturn One, the largest rocket ever assembled at that time. And then, you know, after several generations of development, Saturn V, the rocket that played a pivotal role in the 1969 Apollo 11 mission, which I watched. Did you watch oh, the space course, landing course. on the moon landing? Woken up by my dad. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, 
he is one of the four Nazis from Operation Paperclip to receive NASA's Distinguished Service Medal, the highest award NASA has. He's this sort of extraordinary figure for me who goes from being a, an arch baddie for the Nazis into something that's transformed mankind. Do you think he was so single-minded in the pursuit of his scientific objectives that everything else became secondary to that and he would just do what he needed to do? That was his defence. Yeah. Yeah. That's what he said. He said, I was just a scientist doing my best. But, you know, it's not possible that he didn't know what was going on. And we do know that he got in touch with the Commandant of Buchenwald, asking him to produce more men to work in a lab he set up. He rescued the life of a leading French physicist and said, I need a new lab under him and I need slave labour from your camp. So that is a war crime in itself. Yeah. Mm. We know he did that. In fact, the French scientists just refused to do it anyway. But I find it an extraordinary life that you go from... Prussian aristocrat to Nazi leading scientist to one of the founding men of NASA. I mean, it's extraordinary. It's almost the middle years of the 20th century in a life. Yes, yes. Yeah. you've got that. Do we know anything about his personal life? Yes. Did he have one? He died of cancer suddenly. And as for his actual personal life, I don't really know a lot about it. Maybe the disembodied voice can help. Yes, yeah, so in terms of von Braun's personal life, he was charismatic and considered I think a bit of a ladies man something of a player there are some indications that when he was a young man he would often be seen with two women in one night he did have a number of affairs and he did also have a broken off engagement but he did eventually marry his first cousin and they went on to have three children so he had quite a complicated personal life as well as professional life and just to add to this narrative around um a scientist kind of doing his best in inverted commas. A more sympathetic reading of him as well is it has been suggested by some people that he was advised by sort of more senior scientists that actually it would be a good idea to join the SS because... I don't think you could take the oath, the SS oath, without thinking, do I really sign up to this? But then, you know, we forget on this distance from the war... We who grew up with the knowledge of the Nuremberg trials, we who grew up with the trial of Adolf Eichmann and the uncovering of the terrible story of the Holocaust. In the immediate aftermath of war, that wasn't so widely known, was it? So people were doing what they could to secure an advantage in this very turbulent moment, not thinking how history would judge the people who were participants in that, I guess. Mm. Von Braun had this, the difficulty for him was that, yes, the Americans had helped blur what he had done, But in 1969, the West German government, well, they had three SS men from Mittelwerk in the courtroom, and they referred to von Braun. And he refused to come forward as a witness to the case. He gave a deposition in the German consulate in New Orleans in 1969. But bits of that leaked, and it was really embarrassing for NASA, for everyone, really. But you weren't going to keep him up, were you, if he was so no, valuable to but, your... but there No, but there were hints before. So Tom Lehrer, the satirist, was involved in That Was the Week That Was, which was a satirical programme in America in the mid-60s known as TW3. And this is my favourite fact, is really a distillation of his life. I mean, there's many, many lines to this, but the bits I picked out were from one of the songs. It goes, Some have harsh words for this man of renown, but some think our attitude should be one of gratitude like the widows and cripples in old London town who owe their large pensions to Werner von Braun. So it's quite vicious, you know, but clever. And then I love this line, this pair of lines from Lyra. You too may be a hero once you've learned to count backwards from zero. (laughs) (laughs) 
Anyway, what an extraordinary life in one go. Point of order. Was yes. it that was the week that was in America? Wasn't that the name of the English one? Yeah, but they had it there as well in I 1965. Yeah. I didn't know that. So you're absolutely right. They probably stole it from the Brits, but it was called that. Thank you. And what have much. you got for us, Kat? Right, so final topic this week is mine, and I'm going to be talking about the hawthorn tree. Ooh, that's interesting. Hawthorn. Which I didn't know much about until quite recently. I went to Clastonbury with a friend for a day out, and we walked up Clastonbury Tor, and I learned about the Holy Thorn of Glastonbury mm. and all the interest. But the famous hawthorn, probably Britain's most famous hawthorn tree, was or used to grow at least in Glastonbury. And it allegedly was planted, well, it sprung up after Glastonbury was visited by Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, yes. yeah. to, uh, fairly solidly established historically <laughs> yeah. there. Yeah. So there's <laughs> a lot English of tour. stories about this. Around about AD 63, he travelled uh, to England. Now, he, of course, was... Uh, well, there's lots lots of things that are said about him. One of them, or the main one, is that he was the one who took responsibility for the burial of Jesus. But at this point in time, he travelled to England with various disciples and also carried a vessel with the blood and sweat of Jesus. And in some stories also, that was the Holy Grail. So he was taking this to the southwest of England. They came looking towards Glastonbury Tor, which is this wonderful hill with a tower on the top uh, in the distance. Of course, that wouldn't have been there at the time. But as they stopped, he thrust his staff into the ground and from that spot sprung up a hawthorn mm, tree. Yes, yes, of course it does. <laughs> now, this was there for a very, very long time and, of course, was considered a very important, very special lots of mythology around the tree. It then it used to blossom twice a year in May and at Christmas, which is important because the hawthorn tree normally only blossoms once a year in May, as we'll hear about in a moment. That tree, which was there for a long time, was apparently cut down by the parliamentarians who didn't like all the superstition and all the beliefs mm. around that tree. So it was Ooh. cut down. But <laughs> there is now a descendant of it, an alleged descendant still there, because cuttings were taken of that early tree and uh, it's been essentially regenerated. Sprigs of that particular Glastonbury thorn tree has been sent to the monarch every year for centuries to be decorating the Christmas morning table. So I was really interested in this story and why the Hawthorne and what's so special about it. And it's got the most extraordinary mythology and folklore especially attached to it. The tree in itself is native to the UK. There's various thorn trees uh, where Hawthorne is the most common one. They are generally speaking, sort of dense, thorny, used for hedges and hedgerows especially, mm. or that can grow quite big, sort of 15 metres in height. 15 metres? Yeah, so you huge. can get these yeah. huge single ones, but more commonly you'll see them in hedges. Flower once a year, usually in May, with these highly scented white flowers, and then they can develop deep red fruits called haws. And they're great for wildlife, so really, generally speaking, a very very good thing. They grow very quickly, which mm. is why they're, they're quite useful. Feed for the birds. Boundaries. Yeah, exactly, mm. lots of wildlife. Very, very good. Wood can be used, leaves and buds are edible. Horse can be turned into jellies and wine, actually, as well. Can I ask, Kat, what does H-A-W mean? That's a very good question. I think our disembodied voice might know this one. Yeah, so from my research in terms of the etymology of the word whore, it appears to come from the word haga or heguk, excuse my pronunciation, which means hedge. So. Hedge. 
So yeah, it's a really, really useful one. And it's got some medicinal uses as well. We've got sources of it from the early medieval period especially. And it keeps on cropping up in place names, for example. So in charters and early place names, whenever a tree is in there, so obviously we've got you know lots of place names with oak or something or ashby or anything like that. It's actually the thorn trees that are the most common of all the tree mm. place names. Is also the most commonly used in names of hundreds, so these early Saxon administrative regions pre-1086. So if you have a tree mentioned, it's almost, you know, majority are thorn trees. So again, they've got these importances as boundaries and, and names. They're also mentioned in things like other places of public assembly, including places of execution, which is quite interesting. And this I fell down another little sort of rabbit hole here. Think of Kettering. This has got nothing to do with the Hawthorns, but the original <laughs> early boundary, the boundary of Kettering ran yeah. to, would you not know where that ran to? Hawthorndon. Not quite. To the gallows tree, apparently. Ah, I didn't so, know that. Yeah, the outskirts of Kettering is a gallows tree. Well, same with, well, Findon had a gallows on it, yeah. so the crossroads. So lots of them. Yeah. And there are a few of these places of execution or gallows trees, again, they have got thorns uh, linked to them. One at Burton by the crossing or the Trent, which is uh, named as the thorn where the thieves lie. Oh. That was quite That's fun. very good, isn't it? And interestingly, they do also have in the folklore uh, quite a lot of negative connotations yeah. and relations mm. to death. So that's a possible interesting link there. And just going on to that a little bit, the most famous association really is with May Day and all the beliefs and cults. It's also the pagan symbol of fertility. And essentially the ancestor of the maypole was a hawthorn tree. So mm. it started with the hawthorn before it became a maypole. In garlands around May Day, you have them decorated especially with hawthorn. And in the wreaths of the green man cult, again, oh, yes. hawthorn is very important with that. But that also led to, in 1644, May Day celebrations being banned, partially because of this strong link to fertility and things like the hawthorn tree. But there's so many different rules and so much folklore around the Hawthorne, uh, especially that you should never bring it into the home, except on May Day, because that's special, that's different. And so it's got this association with illness and death. And in medieval times, people described it as having the smell of the Great Plague, <laughs> which sounds like an odd thing. But there's an explanation for this, actually. Can I guess what it is? <laughs> Try, yes. Would you use the flowers in your pomander? No, oh, it's okay. not that. So right. that would seem like a like because that's very yes. often so. But they've discovered that one of the chemicals in the blossoms is called trimethylamine. And that particular chemical is also one of the first that forms in decaying tissue. Yeah. So oh, when an animal... Swedish, so it's a sort of, yeah, Swedish kind of smell of death essentially death. so the idea i think is that people were used to the smell of death and they were used to having bodies laying out in the homes yeah. and so that association is possibly what is linking it to the great plague we don't mm. really know but very interesting you always think of the oak as the sort of tree symbol of england but yeah. actually the hawthorns are much more interesting i agree one, i was it? thinking that too yeah. it's, it's sort of more earthy isn't it and yeah. ambiguous. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. I like the fact it's so functional. It is. I mean, we still around us, there are still hedges that are laid down as boundaries. Yeah. I, I was reaching for an elusive crab apple only a couple of years ago and I fell into a hawthorn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you know, it, you know about it, don't you? Yeah. yeah. It's 
painful. The sort of association, especially in Ireland as well, and in Celtic folklore, it's very important. It's connected to fairies as well. Hmm. So there's rules like if you fall asleep under a hawthorn, you're quite likely to be kidnapped and taken to the underworld. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's got all of those links. <laughs> it's got all of this links to death. But in various Christian traditions, obviously it's got that, that Glastonbury one, but in there was a survey of, of wells, holy wells in Ireland. Many are linked to trees, so have tree names or trees associated with them and the majority of those are then linked to the hawthorn so holy wells and hawthorn trees again have a old link i mean you get it in christian hagiography about the saint's staff that then sprouts yes and it's a symbol of new life but interesting that the hawthorn should again have that double meaning it is both a symbol of life in and renewal in the spring but also a suggestion of death too yes yeah there's another odd link here which just goes back to the greek god of marriage do you know his name? You come across the Greek god of no. marriage? So Hymenaeus, Ooh. or Hymen, is the name of the Greek god, and he's linked to the Hawthorne as well. According to the Greek mythology, he had to be at every wedding for it to be lucky and successful mm. and, uh, and a happy marriage, essentially. And it's thought that that has led it to give the medieval European link to love, essentially, and, and romance and so on, and fertility, because he was so closely linked to the hawthorn tree. So that's possibly the ancestor of that side of it. It's a really odd contradiction. So on the one hand, you have all this associated with death. If you take it into mm. your house, and especially on the wrong time, somebody will die. Yeah. But then on this other hand, you want to celebrate it. And the May Day obviously link as well, because May is obviously when spring properly kicks in. Those mm. celebrations have got to do with new life and spring, as you were talking about at the beginning. And so the fact that these blossom at that time. Cast ne'er a clout, air may be out. You know, people think they mean, oh, the month of May. No, it's the blossom of the May. Oh, yeah. so in other words, don't put away your jumpers until after the May has blossomed. Yes, yeah. and so Tuesday, so now it's a little bit late. It blossoms a little bit later, very rarely by May Day, but that's with the change of calendars. That's with the calendars. Yes. Oh, and they yeah. also, it used to blossom earlier, so it used to be much closer to May Day. So that used to be more of a sort of an actual connection there. But I was saying earlier on that it has also been used, it's got some medicinal uses, and it's been used all over the world, really. In Chinese medicine, there's records going back to the 650s AD of it being used especially for digestive issues and hypertension. The Greek physician Dioscorides, I think it's called, uh, in the first century AD, he writes about it as well, writes about the uses. And from the late 1800s, it's been used as treatment for heart disease, so... Clinical studies have actually shown that it it does work for <laughs> heart disease. So it's clearly a very beneficial tree in so, so many ways. I think but. it's rather beautiful, despite yeah. the spikes. It's a rather wonderful thing. I didn't know it, it was native to, to us. Yeah, no, it's I a didn't, native English tree. Yeah. So it's, oh, it's think about it, it's the quintessential English. Well, rather like oaks, although they're not native to us, are they? But you, no. you kind of think of them as... Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Did you know, Kat, that the Glastonbury thorn had been vandalised? No. Yes, the second one, because they replaced oh. it. So the first one by the parliamentarians, and then they replaced the second one. Yeah. And it was quite recent, I think, 2010 ago, or... I think. Yeah. yeah, about 10 years ago or something. Yeah, a couple of years ago, it probably was 10 years ago. <laughs> yeah, it feels like it, <laughs> But it? there's something interesting about it. I think it's about, you know, the sycamore gap trees. Yeah. Well, there's something about symbolism of trees, isn't there, and violence done to them that 
You yes. wonder, why would you do that? Well, actually, because you're probably picking up the symbolic significance of it on some yeah. level. Yes. Well, yes. actually, that was easy, the easy parliamentarian strike. ones, because this had so much meaning to people and so much superstition. So taking that down is, is quite a and message. In Norse culture, Kat, let's not forget the yeah. ash, the world ash. Yes. That's a big do, isn't ash it? Ash and elm yeah. were the two first people, really. And then you've got Yggdrasil, the... The, the world, world tree, tree. that's yeah. all the words. So, so trees have this huge, important meaning. And you find them in species. the Lofoten Islands. That's very good. <laughs> so both Richard and Charles have been practicing how to say Yes, Lofoten. So there is a problem in the way we're brought up. So I have always said the Lofoten Islands. Like but me. apparently, yes. Apparently you don't mention islands, you just say Lofoten or something. Lofoten. 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 Yeah. And then equally, Kat, when we're dealing with French... Or Belgian, yes, French, um, Walloon, and has has similar issues. So, for instance, cat. We've said Lufoten. Um What's Agatha Christie's Belgian detective known as? Mister Marple, isn't it? No, 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 no. I think no. you know very well who we are. Poirot. <laughs> well, there That's we are. That's really actually good. very good. That yeah. wasn't too bad, That's is very it? Good. What it's did very you good. say before we made you? Poirot. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that was Lord quite what I said. Thank you very much. I love how this didn't come up in the episode where we actually spoke about <laughs> Agatha Christie. <laughs> no, it's come up later. Yes, never yes. forgotten. The hawthorn. That's yes, I think I feel like this was an actual rabbit hole that we <laughs> fell into there, which was, was quite good. I also, the other thing I found out when I was on my sort of day trip to Glastonbury was that um, there are such a thing as birth trees. Oh. So, you know, astrology and star science, oh, yeah. there's also birth trees. So the, the year is divided into 13 different trees corresponding to different months. 13? Point yeah. of order? Uh, yeah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> it was different. I don't quite know how they divide But hang up. on, what, what's yours? So I've looked it all up. Oh, yeah, and this is why I know it, because my tree is the hawthorn oh. tree. As is Charles yours. Oh, because goodness. it goes from, May. so you're late May and I'm early June, and it goes oh, yes. from the middle of the month onwards. Like so a rubbish tree. We, we're, we're both hawthorns who are naturally curious, great listeners, funny, and have a good sense of both irony and silliness, apparently. Oh, well, that would be helpful. Okay. Uh, so you're March, so you're an older. Hmm. That's a witchy one, isn't it's, it? It's a, oh, I think it's quite nice. Not, it's not very English again. Bad. It's got very good description of people who are, have got this tree. Get along well with everybody, and others are attracted to them. Oh well, that. Okay. But okay. importantly, yeah. it also says who pairs well, and alders pair well with hawthorns. Oh, there we are. So, there, you go. there we go. It's on the internet, it has to be <laughs> true. Alder is a bit underpowered. I'd rather be a hawthorn. Yeah. Well. We can't all be awful, awful no, thoughts, right, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> so my favourite fact, yes. um, this one wasn't the birth trees, although nearly, has actually nothing to do with the tree, but I, it was another rabbit hole that I fell into when I was researching. I was trying to look up studies on hawthorns and medicinal studies. Came across the hawthorn effect, oh. which I'd never heard of before, but it was really interesting. Hasn't actually got anything to do with the tree, I don't think. It's got to do with positive results in intervention studies. So it's essentially described as a sort of social placebo effect. So if you're doing an experiment and you're observing people so to, to see if a new therapy or a new treatment works or something like that, you quite often get much more positive results because you are doing a study because it affects the people taking part in it. Oh, I see. And it just so tips them into something. Either because they know they're being yes. observed or maybe they're trying to please the observers or they've been given a really nice lunch to take part yes. or something like that. And that's called the Hawthorne the effect. Hawthorne effect. I like okay. it. Funny you say that because there is a Hawthorne Road in Kettering. 
which I'm mm. thinking was perhaps that was the, the way where the, the gallows, gallows once stood. Yes. Maybe. It was the original boundary of Kettering. Oh, and um, Thorny Island. You know oh, Thorny Island in London? Yeah. Do you know or used to be Thorny Island? No, it's Hawthorne. It's now Westminster yeah. and it used to be an <laughs> island. It used to be so Thorny what? Abbey, wasn't it? It was Westminster Abbey. Oh, really? Yeah. Because yeah. I saw it was a separate island, apparently with a, a thorn tree or hawthorn, and that's what became a very important the church is built on it, mm. then Westminster. That's so interesting, and I'm, I'm really interested in why that hawthorn should be supplanted by the oak. It's perhaps to do with English expansion and confidence in the oak from which the planks were made that built the ships of the line that established Britain as a maritime power. It's a narrative of domination. That and Charles II hiding in one. That was a huge deal. So you, yeah. after that, he did that in 1651. And when he came back in 1660, it was an oak apple day to celebrate his deliverance from being captured by the parliamentarians by hiding in an oak tree. Oak Apple Day was a public holiday. Still in, in Northampton. Still celebrated. In Northampton, yeah. Yep. They crown the statue of Charles. They do. They, with a wreath of... Yes. Oh. Right, so that leaves us with finding out who the winner is. Now, obviously, we are new season, blank slates. Mm -hmm. Anything could happen. Can I just say that there were no <laughs> pronunciation issues in my item, whereas... <gasps> I think there was significant <laughs> pronunciation well, issues. Do you want to do the next episode all in Norwegian, Richard? <laughs> Maybe. Because we could do that. All right. Okay, reverse out of this one. Forget <laughs> I said anything. But just, just now it's in your head. Disembodied voice. Thank you for putting it in my head. I am worried I'm going to start being accused of favouritism, but my oh. favourite this week was Werner von Braun. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, what can I say? Well, hmm. you know, I think there comes a point when the steward's <laughs> inquiry is the only way forward. <laughs> Thank you. Unfortunately, the only person to conduct the inquiry is me. Yeah. Quis custodiet ipsos custodiet. I can't remember the Latin, can you? Who guards the guards? Yeah. Yes. It's a very legitimate question, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Urgent question. Perhaps. Important one. Yeah. Well, well done. You... Congratulations. Thank you. Well, yes, congratulations, Charles. Thank you. I, I can feel it. All that sincerity. Dripping <laughs> <laughs> out of every pore. <laughs> right. Well, next week, new chance, and we'll just have to work a bit harder, won't we? Exactly. Richard, Let's look forward to right. yes. okay. Yeah. So, we have to tell our listeners what our topics are going to be next week. And Charles, you're going to be researching the Wright Brothers. Fantastic. More, fl more flying. Yes. And I'm going to be looking into crowns. Oh. And Richard, cephalophores. Did I say that oh, right? Oh, it's a pronunciation issue there, Catherine, <sighs> I'm afraid. Well, cephalophores. But some cephalophores. People, well, okay. some people say cephalophores, but actually more properly because it's from a Greek. It should really be cephalophores. Excellent. Well, I look forward to hearing all about them. Nothing endears you to an audience more than quibbling over pronunciation. They <laughs> <laughs> love it when you do that. I also guarantee someone will get in touch to say yes. a I correction is incorrect. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we just better go back home and revise, I suppose. Okay. So that brings us to the end of this week. Thank you, everyone out there, for listening. Please do subscribe and leave us a review because it really helps people find us when they're searching for a new podcast to listen to. You can send us an email if you like, especially if you'd like to suggest a topic. That's rabbitholedetectives at gmail.com. So, in the words from Richard Adams, Watership Down. Oh, <gasps> hello. Break with tradition. You're trying to eat grass that isn't there. Why don't you give it a chance to grow? Oh, yeah. I think we just ran out of... 
I saw a photograph. Absolutely stunningly handsome. Oh. A real looker. Excellent. Well, on that note, I think that's goodbye. <laughs> Bye. Watership down. Did you say goodbye? Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.